Today we begin a new series in the book of Exodus, and it's going to run for, for several weeks as we look at this incredible story that everybody is familiar with. Now then, I mentioned this last week that just about everybody, I don't care who you are, whether you go to church or not, just about everybody knows the story of Exodus, at least a little bit, am I right? Absolutely. All of us, we know that story. We know about Moses. We know about Pharaoh. We know about what happens in that story. But it is an incredible series. And I've been involved in a, uh, in a group over uh, the last month, month and a half, that has been discussing this book in, in great detail as we're kind of going chapter by chapter. And we're kind of breaking down the text and seeing what is going on there and seeing what God has to say. And this story is so powerful, and yet this story still speaks to us today, even though it is ancient. It is from the days of old, it still says something to us today. But you read it and you, you open it up and you realize right away that this is a, a gripping narrative. It just kind of jumps out and then it grabs you right from the get-go and it, it draws you in. It's a story that is full of intrigue, self-doubt, lust for power, slavery, murder. It's a story about calling, but it's also a story about defiance and rebellion. Rebellion that even slips into to idolatry. But then there's also deliverance. And ultimately, there is the revelation of the great I Am. Where God, where the Lord, where Yahweh reveals Himself to Moses. And He reveals Himself to the Hebrew people. And He reveals Himself to Pharaoh. Yahweh is going to deliver His people, the Hebrews, from a, a ruthless and rebellious dictator through the imperfect hands of a prince turned shepherd turned prophet by the name of Moses this story it has all the best stuff that Hollywood puts in its movies right I mean what Hollywood movie does not have those things that we just mentioned okay this story has all of those great ingredients and Hollywood knows this because for a lot of years, they've been telling this story, right? Check this out. Moses, right? Who's favorite? When you think of Moses, who thinks of this guy? Honestly, just, just give me a hand. Yeah, the younger crowd. Yes, the younger generation. That's your Moses right there. Charlton Heston, you know, you see him there in the, at, the, at the Red Sea, and he holds up his staff, and he holds up his arms, and that sea just, just parts. Okay, and so that's a lot of people's view of Moses. Well, then, a few years ago, this Moses came along, and maybe others, you can relate to that. That's the, who's, who's, who likes this Moses? Prince, yes, the older crowd likes this Moses, Prince of Egypt Moses. That's, that's your Moses. That's your Moses right there. Yeah, and that came along a few years ago, and that gave us this animated version, and there were uh, scores of children that maybe had never been really exposed to the story all of a sudden were. They were exposed through the through the prince of Egypt. And then, and then just a couple of years ago was this one. You know, Batman Moses. You know, Christian Bale played, 
played Moses in, in Exodus. Uh, what is it? Gods and kings. Okay? And then if it's none of those Moseses, maybe a, a few of you, maybe it's this Moses you think of when I say Moses. That's, uh, that's Moses Malone, the basketball player. If you remember, you know, had a great career from the, from the, uh, the, the 70s into the 90s. But we all have these different pictures of who Moses is, do we not? Yeah, we have these because maybe it's, you know, when we heard this story for the first time, you know, when you read those stories and you read about Moses going and standing before Pharaoh, maybe it's Charlton Heston that comes to mind. Or when you read the plague where, where all of the water in, the, in, the, in Egypt turns to blood, you see the cartoon, the prince of Egypt, as he wades out in the water and the water just sort of spreads out as it is transformed from water into blood. Okay, and so those images, they, they come to mind as we, as we read this story. Now then, it's 2016, it's almost 2017, can you believe that? I mean, we're headed rapidly towards 2017. Okay, we live in an age of modern technology. I mean, how many of us, how many of us are using a phone right now to read this story? I mean, let's just raise a hand. Yeah, a significant portion, okay? I'm using it to make sure that I don't go over, okay? I mean, we live in an age of technology, and so maybe there's a question that's in your mind right now, and it's simply this, why study the book of Exodus? Because that book is old, right? It's old. I mean, it's been around a long time. So why, why would we, in 2016, almost 2017, why would we study this book and, and and how does this book speak to us today well here's the thing everything that god was for for israel god in christ must be for the world today that means he is the protector that means he is the deliverer just as he delivered the hebrews god delivers us through his son jesus christ just as the people were redeemed through sacrifice, God offers redemptions to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Just as God adopted these people as His children, He adopts us through Jesus and we can now approach Him and not just approach Him as Father, but approach Him as Abba. That intimate relationship that we that we have with, that we can have with God. You know, the Old Testament, it's been said that the Old Testament is a, is a shadow or it's a, a, a symbol. The New Testament reveals the, the substance and the reality. But what was true for Israel is true for the church. The New Testament repeatedly applies the new community. The affirmation of, of Exodus 19.5 and 6 that, that talks about Israel being God's special possession, being chosen, being a, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Therefore, when we, we read this story over the coming weeks and we look at the big movements of this story, keep these things in mind that as Israel is passing through the Red Sea to salvation, that becomes a model of, of baptism. God's gift of, of manna from heaven is a model for Eucharist, for communion. 
These sacraments provide for Christ's followers a, a means of grace. The physical vehicle and expression of their union with Him and incorporation in Him. Easter is that, 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 that pattern of, of Israel's ancient festivals of Passover and Pentecost. And they enable us year by year to relive these once-for-all events. The things that, that we do, they have ties back to this story, back to this narrative. When we read about Jesus and we think about our own redemption, it can take us right back to this story. Because you have a story of a people who is oppressed and needing to be delivered. And that is exactly what happens throughout this tale. But that is also what happens to us when we give our lives to Jesus. And so that's why we study, that's why we study the book of Exodus. Now, we know that the Jews are considered God's people. Now, sometimes you'll read them and they'll be, they'll be called the Hebrews. Sometimes they're called the Israelites. It's all the same people. For, for this story, you'll see Israelites a little bit. You'll see Hebrews a little bit. You won't really see the Jews. And they're mostly Hebrews in this story. They weren't really known as Jews until maybe sometime David or, or after. And so when you read Hebrew or you read Jew, understand that that's interchangeable and those are the same people. That's God's, that's God's chosen people that he was going to use to bring the message of, of salvation to the entire world. Now the Jews... Or the Hebrews or the Israelites, they have a history of being a hated people, do they not? In the 1930s and 40s, Adolf Hitler and his Nazi thugs concocted a, a plan that was known as the Final Solution. And it was basically to wipe the Jews off the planet. The, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum says this about the final solution. It was the Nazi plan to exterminate the Jews. Genocide of the Jews was the culmination of a deca decade of Nazi policy under Adolf Hitler. The final solution was implemented in stages. After the Nazi party rise to power, state-enforced racism resulted in anti-Jewish legislation Boycotts, Aryanization, and finally the night of the broken glass pogrom. All of which was aimed to remove the Jews from German society. After the beginning of World War II, anti-Jewish policy evolved into a comprehensive plan to concentrate and eventually annihilate European Jewry. That was Hitler's final solution. To absolutely eradicate the Jews, God's people, from the planet. And if you go and you study the Holocaust and you study those atrocities, you know that six million people, six million people lost their lives. While that seemed like it was so long ago, 
It's relatively short in our nation's history. But did you know that this isn't the only time? And this, this, isn't, this isn't the only time. This isn't, this isn't the first time that somebody tried to wipe out God's people. We have to go all the way back to this ancient narrative where we read about a man who tried to come up with a, a, final, a final solution of his own. And that's where we are as we come to Exodus chapter 1. As we start to, to read this incredibly powerful story that is ultimately going to move a people from slavery to worship. And it shouldn't just do it for them, but it should do that for us. Because as long as we are entangled in sin, we are slaves to sin. But God, just as He delivered the Jews physically, the Hebrews physically, He wants to deliver us spiritually from our sin. And so He wants to move us on that same journey from slavery to worship because He has delivered us. So let's begin reading together. Let's just read the, uh, the first seven verses. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, people born to Jacob, the total number of people born to Jacob was 70. Let's not forget Gad and Asher. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and that whole generation. Now then, notice verse 7, and it should come up on the screen here. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land so that the land was filled with them. The story opens up and it's it's telling us about stuff that if we're familiar with our bibles that we already know. Okay, it's it's talking about stuff that that happened in the book of the beginnings, the book of Genesis. And what we realize then is that as Exodus opens up and is telling us about Jacob and is telling us about his, his 70 family members that are there in Egypt, we realize it's not like, like the, the, the author is just can't think of anything else to write. It's not like he's just coming up with old stuff. We realize that this is a continuation. That this story that we read about in Genesis is carrying over. The narrative is, is moving along. And so you see Exodus 1, especially 1 through 7, reaching back into that story. Reaching back into the, the, the Genesis saga. And by the time we get down to this point, there's 70 people there, but yet they've been blessed by God. And they have multiplied. They've been fruitful and multiplying. And what does that sound like? That sounds like creation language, doesn't it? You know, you think back to the creation story. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, you hear these things. Be fruitful and, and multiply. 
And throughout this story, you're going to see creation language come up. You're going to see life. But you're also going to see uncreation language or anti-creational language. That is full of death, it's full of evil, it's full of hatred. And so as we move through this story, I want you to keep those things in mind that we're looking for God's creational movements and they're always going to be tied to the movements of uncreation. The movements of, of, of anti, anti-creation. And so we have this, this people that are down in Egypt. Okay, now then, we have, to, we have to stop here in just a second, for just a second, and say we cannot have, or we could not have the book of Exodus without something first happening. Okay? The exodus means a way out. And we couldn't have an exodus without first having an isodus or a way in. And that's what's happening. That's what Genesis or Exodus 1 is reminding us of. Is that there was a people that went down into Egypt because there was a famine. But God took care of them and he raised up a leader by the name of of Joseph who was brilliant. And the Pharaoh saw that God was working with Joseph and he promoted him to second in charge in the entire land, in the nation. And so that's where this comes from. Israel was fruitful and they were prolific. They multiplied, they grew exceedingly Strong, so that the land was not just filled with 70 of them, but the land was filled with them. And we see in these first few verses that, that God's blessing and God's promises from Genesis, the promises that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, are now beginning to be fulfilled as we move into the, the Exodus story. But then in verse 8, a turn happens. Notice what it says. It'll be on the screen. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That's very important. A new king arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look at the Israelites. They are more numerous and more powerful than we come let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase and in event of war they will join our enemies and fight against us and escape escape from the land so verse 8 says that there's a new pharaoh and the new pharaoh does not know Joseph. Now, in my mind, that raises a question. Why does this Pharaoh not know Joseph? Why does he not know this story that saved this people? Why does he not know the story that has caused his land to be populated over and over and over again so thoroughly by these Egyptians? Could it be that he was ignorant, really ignorant of his nation's history? Maybe it's more likely, or at least it seems more likely, that he chose to ignore the counsel, 
chose to ignore the, the history of Joseph. He willingly chose not to know. The king of, of Egypt does not know, but yet God does know. And the, the difference between knowing has a profound effect on things. Terence Fredham says that not knowing, now think about this in relation to this story, not knowing leads to oppression. But knowing leads to salvation. Now then, we can, we can, we can relate to that. Pharaoh's willful ignorance leads to fear. And this is a truth that, that many can relate to today. I mean, we see this. That's what we've spent the last month and a half preaching against. That willful ignorance can lead to fear. And if fear is controlling our lives, it can lead us to do some disastrous things, can it not? Willful ignorance of, uh, of someone or some people group always leads to fear. And I think that's what we see happening in Pharaoh because as he looks out, he is not pleased that these people have just multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. He says, let's treat them harshly because they might turn against us. They might, they might join our enemies. And so then what you have happening throughout the, the rest of this chapter is you have, you have what's, is, is what I call the rise of evil. You have Pharaoh unleashing this, this three-point plan of uncreation, of anti-creation. Look at verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply, built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. So Pharaoh is looking around and he thinks in his own mind he's got a problem because he's got this huge people living in his land that he is worried is going to rise up and overthrow him. And so he begins to concoct this scheme. And that leads us to the first one. It's solution one. His idea is oppression and slavery. Let's oppress these people. Let's make them work for us. And do you notice what happens? They ended up building supply cities. Pithom and Ramses. And it says that they continued to multiply. There's that creation language right there. They continued to multiply. Now then, when you watch, when you watch the, the Ten Commandments or you watch the Prince of Egypt or gods and kings or whatever, these kind of things, they move rather quickly, do they not? But how long do you suppose it takes to build a city? Not just one city, but two. How long do you suppose it takes to notice an increase in population growth? That doesn't just happen overnight. 
So I think we can draw that this, this oppression, this slavery was going on for a while. Their lives were made very bitter by the Egyptians. The Egyptians, as they watched, as they continue to watch them grow, they become to, to hate the Hebrews more and more and more. And so their only response is to make their lives more and more bitter. But do you notice that, that uncreation or anti-creation results in more creation? Because as Pharaoh tries to stamp out the Israelites, what happens? They keep multiplying. Kind of like bunnies. You know, they just keep popping up everywhere. There's Hebrews everywhere. Pharaoh cannot control. He's trying to destroy them. And he ends up assisting in creating more Hebrews. He's kind of working against himself here. So that Pharaoh will become not only a, a historical figure, but a symbol for the anti-creation forces of death, which will take on the God of life. That's what Terence Fredham says. And so they apply this ruthless treatment of the Israelites, but the Israelites... They continue to grow. They continue to be fruitful. They continue to multiply. And so Pharaoh looks around. He realizes that plan isn't working. So he's going to dial it in a little bit. He's going to become a little more sinister. And he comes up with his second solution. And it's this right here. Secret assassins. He's going to employ people to start systematically Wiping out the Hebrews. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt. Now then notice, he's not named right there. He's just the king of Egypt. Now that's, that's important. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And allowed the boys to live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous. And they give birth before the midwife comes to them. Pharaoh cannot stamp this people out with slavery. He can't stamp them out with oppression. And so he goes to the Hebrew midwives, the women that serve as midwives to the Hebrews, and says, hey, here's what you do. As she is on the birth stool, you know, like stools that she would squat on to give birth to the child. If you see that it's a boy, you kill it right then and there. Mamas, can you imagine what that would be like? Your son is delivered and right there the child is killed. If it's a girl, fine, she can live. But if it's a boy, kill it. Now, why the boys? Because that's the military. 
That's the warriors. That's the soldiers, the army. That's the ones that he perceives as a threat. So if it's a boy, when you see her on the birthstone of the birthstools, now then there's another really interesting interpretation of that that's not appropriate for now, and if you want to know what it is, find me later and I'll give it to you. But he says, when you see, when you see the woman on the birthstool and she gives birth to a girl, let the girl live. But if it is a boy, you kill the boy. You see how he's working a little more sinisterly? He's hired these women, or at least commanded these women to, to work and function as his, as his assassins. To kill these baby boys. Now then, did you know, I said a minute ago, the Pharaoh was not named. Did you notice that? But did you notice who is named in the story? The midwives. These, these women, Shifra and, and, and Pua. They've been given more importance, more prominence over the most powerful man in the world at this time. And it's important for us to note the role of, of, the, of women in this story, both, both Egyptian and Hebrew, because both Egyptian and Hebrew women are going to thwart the plans of Pharaoh. It is women, and ultimately Pharaoh's own daughter, who save the one who will become the savior of the Hebrews. Of course, this is going to become more prominent in chapter 2. Now then, there's an irony that's, that, that's here. Pharaoh, Pharaoh can get an entire nation, an entire community to bend to his will. But he fails to get two daughters of Israel to respond. He can get his whole nation to, to, to contribute to the slavery and oppression. But two midwives... He can't get them to bend. God is using these women to advance his plan. Okay? Ladies, you play an important role in this. Okay? All right? Now, while all the boys are going to be killed, it doesn't mean the girls are just sitting on the sidelines. The women play an important role in this story. Okay? And next week, that's really going to, it's, it's really going to stand out. But they say, hey, wait a minute, we can't do this. We fear God. And so they make up a lie. And they lie to the most powerful man in the land. They say, hey, man, we get that. Those ladies are vigorous. They're popping them out before we can get there. There's nothing we can do about it. And so Pharaoh is, is thwarted again. And so then he, he goes to the next thing. And this is his, his final solution. Solution number three. And it's nationwide genocide. Look at, verse, look at verse 20. So God dealt with the well with the midwives and the people multiplied. There's some more creation language. They multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile but you shall let every girl live. Do you see the anti-creation language there? Kill them. Destroy 
life. Don't allow life to continue. Kill them all. And now, he's so desperate that he involves his entire nation. He tells any one of his people, if you see a Hebrew boy, it is open season. You have the right to kill that child right there on the spot. You pick him up, you toss him into the Nile River. They'll be drowned, maybe eaten by crocodiles. But he actually scripts infanticide. Kill all the babies. This, this final solution is a command to the entire nation to commit murder. To kill the boys by throwing them into the Nile. It's out of control and, and fear. Control and lack of control out of control fear, out of control hatred leads to these kinds of atrocities. And then the chapter just kind of ends. There's no, there's no resolution to it. It's just this command. Go and kill all the boys. Let the girls live, but go and kill all the boys. And so it leaves us wanting more, wanting to know what's, what's going to happen. What happens to the boys? What happens to the girls? What is God, and, and maybe here's a good question for us to ask, what is God going to do about this? Because we expect God to work, right? We expect God to step in on, on behalf of this people. So now then, how is this story, how is this, how is this a word to us? It's very simply this, that we know in life that things are not always as they ought to be. Right? Are you with me? We know in life that things are not always as they ought to be. John just pointed that out to us. Things are not as they ought to be. When we read this story, we realize that for the Hebrews, things were not as they ought to have been. The Hebrews have, have been enslaved. They've been murdered. Uncreation is breaking out everywhere. You see, but we have, the, we have the vantage point of looking back into history, looking back through the years, and we know that God is going to take notice. We know that, that God will intervene. And we can draw strength from that. So just as it was for the Hebrew. Things are, are not always as they should be. And sometimes, sometimes we can explain it. Sometimes things are not as they should be because of the, the actions of others. Sometimes things are not as they ought to be because of actions and choices we make in our own lives. But sometimes things, sometimes things go bad and there's just no explanation for it. Freak occurrences and freak accidents. It's in these times that, that we must remember that just as the Hebrews were God's people, we too are God's people. We doubt and we struggle. But we trust God. And so the point is this. 
where creation, where uncreation is breaking out all around us. We must trust in the God of all creation. Now that's not always an easy thing to do, is it? Especially when things are just going crazy around us. When you look around at the things that are happening in our nation, when you look at the things that are happening in people's lives, we see uncreation in all forms. We see it in in sickness and, and disease. We see it in oppression and and, and violence. But it's during those times of uncreation, of anti creation, that we have to trust God more. Trust that He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Trust that He is the God who delivered the Hebrews. Trust that He is the God who looked down and He saw our plight and He saw our sin and He sent His. Son, to die for us. And so during those times of uncreation, we put our faith, we put our trust in the God of all creation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the day that you've given us. Thank you for this time that you have blessed us and you've loved us. And it's time that you've given us to look at this incredible story. This story that has some very hard things to, to deal with and some very hard things to understand. God, but it also has a, a message to us that if we will just hold on, that if we will just secure our faith in you, that you will deliver, that you delivered the Hebrew people, and that ultimately, God, you long for, you long for and and will deliver those who have given their lives to Jesus. We're so grateful for that. And so, Father, as the world spins out of control around us and anti-creation breaks in all over the place father help us not be the people who participate in it because you are the god of life and you are our god father help us to be the people that participate in the business of life the business of love and faith Help us to put our faith and our trust in you, the God of all creation. In your son's name we pray, and all together we say, amen.